The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk. Hello and welcome along to the Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan, coming up this week. Well, it's Easter weekend and for all of you chocolate lovers out there, we'll be speaking shortly to the founder of Graw Chocolates. I'll be chatting to an award-winning Irish designer on designing hotels, what trends and colours and challenges are out there. Have we lost our practical DIY skills? Well, a group based in County Clare seems to think so. And interior designer Ruth Noble on window treatments and Easter trees. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com if you'd like to get involved. I'm over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And of course, you can listen on a Saturday morning on News Talk Radio between 8 and 9. And of course, as you are now on podcast and all of our shows are up on the News Talk app, which is powered by Go Loud. <laughs> Now, my next guest screams Easter because we are going to talk all things chocolate and not just any old chocolate. This is top tier stuff, folks, all the way from Galway. Grania Mullins of award winning Graw Chocolates. Exquisite artisan confections made with love, says the label. And indeed, looking at the luscious display in front of me, that is spot on. Grania, very welcome to the Home Show studio. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, this is a difficult job I do, uh, interviewing people about all sorts of things. And I'm prepared to take one for the team today because <laughs> very tough. we are going to uh, we are going to have a look at some of these beautiful chocolates not just have a look um, we are going to have to go whole hog and actually try some of them out so much and all as I would like to dive in let's start with your own story first um, because you have what many people would consider a dream job how did I it all sure start? <laughs> so I actually definitely have the dream job. I think if I told Gronya when she was a little kid that she would own a chocolate factory when she grew up, I don't think <laughs> she'd believe it. But it's, oh no, I'm very lucky. So how it all started, um, I love food, always have done. Um, I always used to love to bake and cook with my family uh, at home when I was little and that kind of led up the whole way through my life until I got my first job in transition year um, working in a kitchen after a lovely work experience and from there I just kind of kept it on as a part-time job so I kind of worked my way up the ranks I started working in five-star hotels actually alongside doing my science degree and then I made a big move and moved to the south of France, uh, the home of cuisine, the home of pastry and sweet things as well. So I absolutely loved that. And I kind of came into my own and realised this is really what I wanted to be doing. So um, I was promoted to head pastry chef in the Michelin star restaurant down there in the beautiful sunshine. Wow. And yeah, it was amazing. That sounds like, was it always pastry with you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you knew that from the off because whenever you... On the rare occasions I've been in a Michelin-starred restaurant and dessert arrives, the meticulousness, the beauty, it's like art on a plate. Yeah, it's it's the attention to detail. Yeah. So pastry chefs have to be very calculated. You have to be able to follow a recipe, stay organised because it's, Unlike cooking, I suppose, or hot cooking where you... You can't be doing a Jamie Oliver, a bit of this and a chuck of this and throw in an extra. Like, it's so precise. It is. And that's, I suppose, quite scientific as well. So that's why when I was studying science, it quite led in together, both of them. So I'm lucky to have had that background and have that explanation. But it's also shows like how you can be particular about things. But also when you understand the science behind how a cake works mm. and the gluten strands and the sugar the dextrinization all of these little things it, it teaches you how you can play with it as well so you can adjust your sugars play with your flowers 
change it around a bit so it doesn't have to be the standard recipe. You you learn so much about the products that you can change it as well. So what got you then from the south of France, which sounds absolutely perfect, in a Michelin star restaurant to setting up your own business in the wilds of Galway? So after moving back, I was loving life in um, around Galway and back home in Ireland. And... I had just won the Young Chef of the Year competition in 2019. So that's in November 2019. And I thought 2020 was going to be my well, year. Well, didn't we all? <laughs> didn't we all? What happened? You might well, as well tell us. As we all know, the country <laughs> went into lockdown. Right. And it kind of turned my plans upside down. But I was keeping myself busy. I struggled with not being busy. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I was baking every single day, cooking. I was number one with all the neighbours because they were getting treats left at their front door. Yeah, never mind the old banana loaf. You <laughs> yeah. were probably sending fabulous stuff. Everything I could. Something Every single day was a new dinner and a new dessert or treat for the family. Um, so one thing I actually decided to do was make a hand-painted Easter egg for all friends and family as a pick-me-up treat. Uh, similar to the ones you have in front of you. <laughs> Can I tell you something? For somebody, I know I know you have this history and you've been doing this a while, but for somebody who just did this for the first time in 2020, they look absolutely beautiful. Um, I mean, it's not just, I'm sure they taste beautiful, we're about to find out, but they look beautiful. So tell me what's involved. So what is this? We might as well get straight into it. What is this one here now? That's our little bit salty Easter egg. So it's our salted caramel Easter mm. egg. So See, I started off with the best <laughs> one, didn't I? So folks, I'm going to, we'll throw up a picture of this after the show, but actually it's not just because it, this doesn't look like chocolate. This looks like porcelain. Yeah, nearly like Faberge eggs, don't they? So, like, sorry, I have to start eating them now. You talk, (laughs) you chat away there. And I will will start eating these now. Hence the beautiful colour. So, each and every one is hand painted. We have uh, four chocolates that go alongside. And I always loved as a kid when I had the Easter egg (laughs) that it had to have treats on the inside as Mm. well. So, inside the egg, we also have pieces of salted caramel, salted caramel fudge, and a sprinkling of Ackle Island sea salt. So, um, they're really unusual they're beautiful to look at but most importantly they taste amazing as well they do that is absolutely gorgeous that's dark chocolate but you can actually taste the cocoa (laughs) content there because it's quite high it is and it's not too sweet exactly so it's a nice balance but it's not too bitter either so I think Mm. our chocolates I have kind of developed them for the Irish palate I know what we like and I also know that we love to use Irish ingredients you'll taste that one has mm. the Ackle Island sea salt in it as well so it comes the water from the Atlantic Ocean is dehydrated down and that beautiful sea salt from our own oceans is put back into our chocolate. and you're a big fan of local ingredients you do like to kind of stay with what you have Absolutely, I do. Um, so I think the best quality, if you can source it directly from somebody or really locally, is always the best way to go. It's not only sustainable and economical, but it gives you the best quality. And it also means you can ask for something unusual from from the producer or they can give you something quite unique. So OK, so so this next one then, um, this is more kind of, um, so so that was kind of blue and lots of swatch, like a por- piece of porcelain. This is more like a painting on a wall. It's kind <laughs> of got swirls of orange and cream and brown. What what flavour is this? That's our nuts about you. So our hazelnut praline. So really, really good. It's a milk chocolate egg. It has a beautiful hazelnut praline. So we take those hazelnuts, we roast them off ourselves, make sure they're absolutely beautifully roasted at the perfect temperature. And then we blend that down with a caramel paste to make Mm. our own hazelnut paste. So it's Mm. completely fresh, absolutely unusual in the flavour. But if a hazelnut lover loves it. That's lovely and actually much 
creamier and softer um, than the one that went before because it's got this kind of fondant. I was always one of those <clears throat> as a kid who took all the nuts out of the roses because I didn't like them. But actually, I love them now. And it, that's an absolutely beautiful example of that. Yeah, their flavours, they're kind of really carefully balanced as well. What you will feel is that it doesn't taste overly sweet as well. And that's even because we add a touch of sea salt in there to balance the palate very carefully. Mm. And I suppose I learned that working in Michelin star restaurants that you need to have your bit of acidity, your bitter notes, your sweet notes. It all has to balance really carefully together. It can't be overly sweet, overly dark. It has to be carefully thought about. Is chocolate as difficult to work with as people say it is? Because there's a lot to do with the outside temperature, the temperature of the kitchen, the tempering of the chocolate. It's a tricky old ingredient, isn't it? It sure is. Um, But once you get used to it, you kind of become really familiar with it. So the only way to get used to it is by working with it. Thankfully, we have air conditioning, we have perfect temperature fridges, we have cooled work surfaces. um, So all of that helps. But if we didn't have that, it'd be a little bit trickier. Um, And I think when I was at home doing it, just all by myself on my parents' kitchen counter on a hot summer's day. It was pretty tough to get the the perfect temperature for the chocolates. But you learn, that's the best way to learn as well is by making those mistakes and by retrialing it again and finding solutions. Now, you've been hugely successful, uh, Gráinne, with the business, uh, you know, in the very, very limited time that you've been doing it. And you were mentioned on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. I was. And the turnover of your business is no surprise. Tell us what it is. Uh, just under one million. Yeah. So it's I mean, incredible. it's an extraordinary success. Is this it for you now? Because you sound so super ambitious. I, I think you must have ideas for the future. We do. So I think there's so much potential within chocolates as is. So there's so many ranges and products that I want to get making and designing. And I just can't wait for that. So we have a lot of kind of new products in the pipeline. and I'm so excited about that. But I also then want to expand So I'm going into hotel chains um, or into five star hotels so we can do the bedroom amenities. So imagine having grot chocolates on your pillow at the night, at the evening. That'd be very nice. (laughs) It would, it would. And then just a few kind of things. I really want to move out to the UK as well and get into the UK market. So there's a lot of potential of growth there because I think we're only just starting our journey. How have you found the supports, if any, that you've got in Ireland? Because I know like we do love to champion entrepreneurs and new enterprise and all that. Uh, And I know there are great government grants and supports. But how did you find the process of getting money together to pull together a big business like this? So it was kind of tricky at the start. I didn't even know where to start with. Um, but the local enterprise office in Galway were absolutely amazing, so supportive. I was able to get a priming grant for the first set of equipment that I bought. They also gave me loads of mentors that I didn't like. <laughs> funny story as well. When I was first told I need to contact Leo, I thought, who's Leo? I actually thought they were talking about Leo Varad Group. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually the local enterprise office. That was a quick learning I'm sure you take your call now, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. But it was great. So they supported so much. And then thankfully Enterprise Ireland as well. So I've mm. done a few courses with Enterprise Ireland. They're equally as supportive. Because they like people with, with an export focus. Absolutely, they do. And I just found that the support networks throughout were just really incredible. There's so many amazing groups. It's one thing that they do that's so valuable is give you mentors that match your business. And mm. I've been so lucky with getting incredible, incredible mentors and people that I will always go to advice for. Um, so yeah, really the support's out there. They're out there to be used. So I recommend to anyone I ever speak to that's starting up a business to reach out to all of those supports because they're, they're there and all they want to do is to see you succeed. Yeah, and it's a good news story. And we, we kind of, and I'm guilty of myself on this show and on other shows uh, during the week, 
where you're kind of government bashing and giving out about what can't be done and what isn't being done and no money for this and no money for that. So actually, when it does work and when there is um, sports available, it's worth showcasing that and telling people that they're there because there might be people sitting at home, Gráinne, like you said, I've always wanted to do X. I've been doing Y, but here's my opportunity. And you're saying, would you say go for it? Absolutely. I think a dream is, if you have your big dream, you have to believe in yourself and you have to make it happen. And always kind of knowing where that first step is, is always the hardest part. But if you use your local enterprise office as your first step. They will help to guide you. The first time I ever had a call with them, they said on the phone to me, great idea, but we want to see it in a plan. And that gave me a month. They said, we'll call you back in a month. Mm. And it gave me a month to start on a business plan. Then when they saw I was putting in the work, then they were willing to give me even more Mm. supports and mentors Mm. and more and more. So also you have to like take a few boxes with them and follow what they want, Mm. but they're only doing it so it'll aid you in the long run as well. So definitely worthwhile. Those supports are there. They're incredible supports for mm. incredible businesses because all they're trying to do as well is create employment in the local area. So when it's visually clear that you're doing that um, or at a small level or a big level, once you're creating employment in the area, you're actually putting money back into the economy as well. I, I'm sure it helped that you had a delicious product. <laughs> yeah. they could, it's not like a pair of socks. <laughs> you actually exactly. had something they go, oh, I can taste this. All right. Well, listen, Gronia. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and about the company? So grawchocolates.com is our website but you can also um, it's Easter Saturday so you can pop into Brown Thomas stores nationwide and pick up your last minute oh, Easter Oh brilliant because actually to. I was thinking maybe it's a bit late today <laughs> to get, get your hands on Graw chocolates but you're saying no it's not so Hopefully Brown Thomas Hopefully there's some left oh, right, in stores okay, okay, yeah. okay. So the nuts about you luxury Easter egg uh, the little bit salty I must say I really really love that one uh, and all of the others that you have in the range uh, Folks they're a work of art you won't want to crack into them and then you will. Uh, so, Gráinne Mullins of Graw Chocolates, thank you so much for joining us on the Home Show today. Thank Happy you. Easter. Happy Easter. Now, my next guest, Nikki O'Donnell, is an award-winning Irish architect with over 25 years' experience in the industry. She joins me now to talk about the differences about designing hotels compared to homes. Nikki, you're very welcome along to the Home Show. Thanks, Sinead. Pleasure to speak with you. Now, uh, first of all, I, look, there is a different set of challenges um, for buildings with multi-occupancy and has a through flow of guests all the time compared to designing, um, say, for a domestic house, particularly when it comes to the bedrooms. So talk to me about the challenges that you face designing for hotels. So there's common denominators and there's differences. And as you say, designing a hotel, you have a much wider audience. Uh, So we look to the end user and this can vary between types of hotels. But let's say you could break it simply down into the leisure guest or the business guest and different sets of demands. Uh, you You could look at families, couples, overseas visitors. I recently bumped into a gang of roadies checking into the Morrison uh, supporting the Elton John concert. (laughs) And again, a completely different set of requirements. Um, So if you specifically want to look at designing the bedroom, the hotel bedroom, uh, you arrive with your luggage. You need somewhere to put that. You need to be able to work from your bedroom. So we need to address that. You specifically want a great bed with great linen and somewhere where you can put your head down and get a good night's sleep. 
full blackout curtains, for example, um, are essential. Um, a very generous ensuite bathroom uh, with a power shower, walk-in shower, I would say. The days of climbing into the bath for the shower are long gone, and you'll find most of our hotels are now replacing those. Um, and I would say lighting and lighting settings and flexible lighting settings is essential. Mm. Now, I have a pet theory about hotels. Yes. And I can usually tell within about two minutes of walking yes. into a hotel bedroom whether there was a woman involved in the design of it or not. And you know what I'm going to say? I do. It's I about do. a mirror Yes. In natural light, not that yellowy bathroom light where nobody wants to put on their Donald Trump lookalike makeup. Yes. Um, it's about having plugs where you need them to be. It's about a storage for your delicates and all the bits and bobs that you've brought and somewhere to put your book and all that kind of thing. Do you think that women designing for women is a really important thing in the hotel industry and could we do it more of it more importantly? Sinead, I think you'd make a great hotel room designer, do you know that? Well maybe a, a five star <laughs> hotel checker outer, how about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be a good job with it. Um, I completely agree with you and um, uh, so women rarely want to put their makeup on in the bathroom um, it just isn't natural, is it? No. And uh, so, yes, we would try and get, and it's difficult, try and get uh, the mirror closer to daylight and also to get good all-round lighting onto your face is really important. So down light, i.e. the light sitting in the ceiling, shining down on your face, is absolutely the wrong type of light because obviously it throws shadows onto your face. Um, the plug for the hair dryer to yes. be close to the mirror wouldn't yes. that be fantastic? Imagine um, the, the the intricacies involved in putting a plug where you need a plug to be. I mean, it's very yeah. basic stuff. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've been in a hotel of any yeah. star, two mm. to five, and you know it's hard to get it right. Do you know something? It's amazing the amount of thinking that goes into it because. As well as that, Sinead, there's also, you know, people now travel with their mobile phones, they travel with their iPads, their laptops, they need to charge them. And they don't want to be on their hands and knees trying to find a socket. Under uh, the dressing table, fiddling around, unplugging a lamp to it. plug in. I know, plug, that's I it. know. So besides the bed, nice and visible. Um, and then we need to look at international sockets. How many times have you gone abroad and you haven't brought your adapter mm. and you can't plug in your bits and pieces? And these are these are the things that really annoy uh, travellers, you know, because they get in late, they have to charge the phone, they don't want to have to go back down to the desk to try and see if they got an adapter. So, yeah, they're all the things that we now think about and... Um, and are becoming sort of the basics. And uh, you know, with the young traveller these days um, who are completely digitally native, if they, you know, they're the ones who are driving all of this. So what do they look for now? Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about people maybe using it as a hub to work in yes. or recording videos for their social media or yes. kind of diving in and out of, a, of cities. So, yes. so talk to me a little bit about what... Um, what the younger generation looks for? 
Yes, and it's, I find it really interesting because the younger generation kickstarts this and then it affects and influences all of us, which is really interesting. So the shift in, if you call, luxury, and this is a really interesting topic to talk about, what do we, what luxury means different things to different people. But for that age group, they are looking for authentic experiences. That's the terminology we're using because, number one, they want a place that they can have a great shower, that they can charge their devices, if mm-hmm. you like. They can get in and get out. They want to know about the locality that the hotel is located in. That's really important, that they're connected into the city or connected into the region of the city that they're in. They don't want it to be anonymous. And this is affecting and changing the way hotels are being designed in that we we look at maybe through artwork, through local artists, through local food producers. We look to tell the story of the location. And that really has been driven by that age group. And, and then everybody enjoys it. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny to say that, you know, the likes of, say, the micro hotels, which... They're the hotels with the smaller bedroom design with the minimal food offering. And, for example, we could quote uh, Citizen M, Moxie, yes, yeah, yeah. All those hotels are orientated towards that group. But let me tell you, every age group is staying in them. You know, so. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's a particular kind of product and a particular service in the yes. locations that people yes. want. Now, when it comes to Irish hotels and particularly the more luxurious end, yes. I mean, you know, people love that uh, idea that you mentioned yes. about the crisp linens and the yes. walk-in shower and the separate yes. bath. I mean, they don't have any yes. of that at home, but they love it yes. in a hotel. Yes. But also, I'm increasingly seeing hotels sourcing local products in terms of the toiletries or maybe yes. Uh, lamps or dishes yeah. or, or yeah. bit the yeah. artwork that's around. Yeah. Is that an important factor for visitors? Yes, it is. And it's all part of that connectivity. Like we worked on, uh, we've been working on the Inchidani Spa Hotel probably for about 10 years now. And Des, who owns it, and that's a privately owned hotel as opposed to a branded hotel. And there is a difference between the two. Mm. But for example, in Chidani, um, people go down to that hotel and similarly to our other destination hotels, the Castle Palace, um, Ashford Castle, all of those. They go there specifically to spend time in those hotels to immerse themselves in the landscape or the estate. Um, and, and not just those hotels, but as you've mentioned them, you know, they will work with the local artists, local potters, uh, local food producers, and it sort of reinforces the location and everybody's. It creates a memorable experience in that everything you touch and see, everything you eat, everything is connected to that location. And it just creates a bigger experience. And that is what everybody wants. And I suppose it helps local businesses as well, because if you're in, you know, somewhere that 
has a local pottery and you've used that in your yeah. restaurant or yeah. in the hotel, you know, customers might be inclined to go and pay a visit and do the tour and buy a few pieces. So it, they kind of all feed each off each other, don't they? Yes, it, it does, you know, and, you know, this is this is this feeds into the conversation on sustainable and sustainability mm. and how everybody, everybody helps everybody else. And if you can imagine a hotel that supports local local will also support that hotel you know it works both ways mm. um and uh, and creates for i i imagine a more successful business but also um a, a better community mm with regards to that. Now, one of the things mm. that ha- seems to have grown in trend um, mm. is the emergence of, of pet-friendly hotels, places yeah. that you can bring your pooch. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not, I wouldn't be a huge fan of that myself, but yeah. I know that lots and lots of people don't like to travel without their uh, dog. So, are you seeing that, uh, Nikki, in hotels? Are they demanding pet spaces? Um. I'm hearing of it more than seeing it. I'm, there's a few hotels here that do it. I haven't designed one yet. I I have two dogs. I'm not sure I would want I would want to bring them on holidays <laughs> with me. One is a St. Bernard. Oh, and, right. Um, okay. They take up the whole room. Yes. But, but you know, I, I am reading of hotels. And, for example, it's come into the office design, you know, where, you know, people are bringing their dogs into the office. They're no. bringing their dogs on holidays. But also hotels now that are, you know, they're offering a grooming service. They're offering daycare or, yeah. Doggy for doggy. <laughs> you know, so that, you know, I, here's my thing, right? I think hotels will always respond to the guests' demands and requirements. Yeah. You know, and... Yeah. Well, that's and their so that's, stock in trade. But honest to goodness, sometimes maybe they should be saying, no, no. come by yourself, <laughs> kennel your animal. All right. Well, look, the trends continue and all of the plans continue. And hotels, it seems to me, are still being built every day around here. Certainly if the cranes around where we are in the studio here up in Diggs Lane or anything to go by, yeah. um, there is still a massive burgeoning industry. Yeah. Uh, and of course, people like you at the forefront of it. Mm. Nikki O'Donnell, Head of Hospitality at Henry J. Lines Architects. Thanks a million for joining us today on the Home Show. Now, Harrison Gardner is co-founder of Common Knowledge. It's a not-profit social enterprise group based in County Clare. It was founded in 2021 by Harrison and Fionn Kidney and it has the aim of teaching people or reteaching people, I suppose, a wide array of lost skills from DIY to dry stonewalling and everything in between. Harrison, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you so much, Sinead. It's great to be here. Now, um, tell listeners a little bit about the Common Knowledge Project. Sure. Yeah, like you said, the the Common Knowledge Project is really aiming to reconnect us with a lot of the skills that the generations before us would have considered common knowledge. Things like building and fixing things around our own home, mending our own clothes, making our own paints, making our own food and growing our own food. But, but not just looking backwards and, and celebrating the, the straight tradition of things, but also looking forward and seeing how these skills can help us lead more sustainable lives in the future, how they can help us lead more economical and efficient lives as well. 
And basically, what, what does the past have to show us for our future as we all seem to be scrambling at the moment in so many aspects of housing and, and food quality and nutrition and community? What, what, can we, what can we get from the past that's going to help us build a better future for all of us? Mm. And I suppose that is right on the money in terms of the zeitgeist that's out there at the moment about reusing, repurposing. And, and I suppose these skills that, uh, do you believe that we've lost them because we're into kind of fast fashion and fast moving consumer goods and just replacing stuff we have with new things all the time? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say it's as, as simple as that. And I wouldn't say it's even necessarily our fault as individuals that, that we've lost these skills. I think really what it stems from is that we are, we are right in the, the middle of the era of specialization, where, where people become specialists in one thing and, and leave every other part of their lives to other people, which is a real luxury. If, if, you can, if you can become a specialist in something enough that you can earn enough money from it, that you can pay for every other part of your life to be, to be managed for you, that, that's great. But the, real, the reality is that that's a that's a hard thing to achieve for most people, but it's what we're striving for. We're, we're striving to become specialists. And I think what we need to change and, and what we need to bring back is the value of being generalists again, knowing a little bit about a lot of things so that when simple things or basic things in our life come up that need fixing or need our attention or need help, that we can actually solve these problems ourselves with just a tiny bit of learning. Mm. And, I think the core of this is that we need to remember we're, we're always students, you know. Humans are made to learn things. That's how we've evolved. That's how we've gotten to where we, we got to. And we, we didn't get there by stopping our learning at 23 years old when we finished university and never learning another thing. You know, we, we're, we're students every day of our life. And every day in the street or at the shops, we're meeting people who know something we don't know that could be really helpful or useful in our life, whether that's how to prepare a certain cut of meat or how to mix your own lime paint for painting onto your building. And, and these, these little things that we, we don't share enough anymore can end up having huge effects to our life, to our, to our happiness, to the feeling we have of control and agency over solving our own problems, and also to our levels of community. You know, we're, we're built to share. We're, we're designed to share ideas and and share theories and help each other out. And, and together we can make all of our lives richer. Now, before we get on to the specific courses that you offer uh, down there in uh, the Boghill Centre in the Burren, uh, one of your successes has been uh, the Tiny Homes Initiative to Gein. Mm. Now, I've been looking at this uh, on your website and, and elsewhere. Tell me a little bit about it because the tiny home thing kind of took off a few years ago and there's been Netflix series and all kinds of things on it. But, but talk to me a little bit about what it's all about from, from your perspective, Harrison. Absolutely, yeah. Look, we designed the tiny home, uh, the Tiggin tiny home, to be a, another option out there. It's not going to suit everyone, but it's, it's a potential option to solve this need of shelter that we have. Now, the reality is, I think it really serves a minority of people, but, but it's an idea that sparks a lot of other thoughts. If we can, if we can build a home for ourselves, 
for less than 50,000 euros that could be moved anywhere, that, that, could, that could change its location, that doesn't need a piece of land for, for, it, to be, for it to be considered a home. Then what, what, else, what else could we do? What other options are there out there that we're not considering? And can we make a space like that not feel restricted and small, but make it feel generous and, and abundant? And that was a really big part of the design process for the, for the tiny home that we designed, where we wanted to use the most sustainable and circular materials that we could when building that home. We wanted them to last as long as they could. And we wanted the space to feel to feel big. We wanted it to feel generous. So while it has a very small square meterage, it has quite a big volume. It has very tall ceilings throughout the whole space. It has a loft area where the sleeping happens. It has a bathroom, a kitchen. It has a couch. It has room for, for all the little parts of our life we need, but truly doesn't have anything more than you need to get by. Mm. And I, I think it's important to be clear that the, the Tiny Home Project is as much an idea as it is a, a product that we created a few of last year, that we can live with a lot less than we, we currently do. Now, our tiny homes that we designed, I, I believe they, they really ser- serve a few people at a certain stage of their lives. And they, that might be young professionals. It might be people moving to the countryside from the city who don't have a family yet. I myself have, have two children and a wife, and I know that we couldn't fit the four of us into one of the tiny homes we designed, but it wasn't really designed for us. And the people who have purchased the tiny homes that, that we made last year, two of them are going into retirement and are using them as a downsizing option from their, their current home, and two others are, are pre-starting a family and looking for a housing solution for the immediate while they save and earn their money to to build mm. their forever mm. home so they're and, not paying rent somewhere else yeah indeed and and of course we know that that is such a problem at the moment so any new initiatives and and that's certainly an innovative one uh, would be very very welcome uh, now onto the building courses that you do and the diy skills uh, they are selling out i mean the one at the end of the month is waitlisted the one in june waitlisted the one in july is open for bookings um harrison tell me what people will learn on these courses and how they get involved in them. Absolutely, yeah. Look, the Build School program is, it, it's really at the heart of common knowledge. And what we teach in that five-day course is the fundamentals of construction. We don't teach any one method of how to build a house. We teach how buildings are constructed in general, how all buildings work, how gravity and wind, how, how forces are applied to buildings. And, and we, we take everyone on a journey through how we've been building buildings since, since we've been humans, since we've been surviving. Shelter's been one of our basic human needs. And so over that week, we cover everything from, from gravity and, and load support to the thermodynamics of buildings, how we keep our houses warm in winter and cool in summer, to water filtration, to alternative sewerage systems and cladding and waterproofing and everything. And so over the course of that week, students come. We spend about half of the time in theory classes in the morning and we spend half of the time building a building together and every every week we build a building from start to finish so so that everyone can experience this process of creating a structure from from nothing 
to a roof over our head wow. in just a week with that, a group of people. That's very, very ambitious altogether. And, and do people stay on site then while they're doing that? They do, they do. So at our beautiful new site in the Burren, we have dorm accommodation, we have private rooms, we also have a campsite. And, and so people stay here on site and we, we spend all day talking and learning about building and then we spend all evening arguing and debating different building practices. <laughs> and, and that's just as important, you know. I think a big part of building, bringing building back into common knowledge is that it's not something that is reserved to the building sites or the architecture offices, but it's something that we argue about at the pub. It's something that we, we have preferences about and we debate about because it's really important. These are our homes that we're talking mm. about. These mm. are the spaces we're going to spend a lot of time in. And the type of home we live in is just as important as the type of food that we eat. And more and more, we're, we're, we're understanding how those things affect our happiness and our health. Well, they're certainly very popular. And um, where can people find out more about the uh, building courses? So our website is ourcommonknowledge.org. And you can see all of our courses that are there, as well as all the other events that we've got coming up for the year. All right. Uh, Harrison Gardner, co-founder of Common Knowledge, based down in the Burren. Thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show this morning. Now, you're very welcome back to The Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. And of course, we are going to stick with the Easter theme, given the weekend that's in it. And for anybody who likes all that kind of stuff at the top of the show, we, of course, had Grania Mullins with all her gorgeous chocolates in studio. So I can still taste those. And we have Ruth Noble of Ruth Noble Interiors in to talk about all things Easter. Uh, To start with the Easter tree, which has become a thing. Ruth, you're very welcome along. Happy Easter. Hi, Sinead. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, for anybody who likes a little bit of decoration, wants to do something with the kids uh, today, it's not too late. Um, The Easter tree. I was hoping this hadn't become a thing, but it seems like it has. It it has. Um, I think people are beginning to embrace every holiday (laughs) with full (laughs) enthusiasm. Um, How would you go about doing something simple? Because I've seen kind of very artistic ones and the kind of branches you collect in the forest and you're hanging little things from them. But if you just want to do a few simple decorations, uh, what what could you do? I'd pull a few branches together, be kind of adding little ribbons, getting some pom-poms, gluing those on and... There are Easter decorations. I mean, you can go into the Flying Tiger and Marks and Spencer's pick up some small decorations. Yeah, and they're not going to be terribly expensive. On, but it just, I suppose, brings a bit of um, a festive element. And of course, if all else goes wrong, you just get a bunch of daffodils and plunk them in the middle of the table and it looks just as nice. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> all right, exactly. okay. Well, now, if everybody is going to be looking into your home to see all those decorations, you might have as well have your windows looking nice says she doing a neat segue there because uh, I want we want to talk to you about window treatments and window dressings and all of that um, because they are really really important and when you're designing a home I know that you believe that maybe people don't put as much time into researching how their windows will look because they're so busy thinking about the walls and the paper and the carpets and all of that kind of thing. So talk to me a little bit about planning um, around the windows in your home. Yeah, well, from the offsite, I mean, it depends on the size of your project. If you're kind of working room by room or you're working off plan, I think it's really important to consider from the start um, your window dressings, um, taking in mind kind of the aesthetic of the room, 
the functionality of the room and of course your budget. Um, I find kind of early on in a project people don't consider so much the window dressings because mm. they're further down the line or they're something that they're not really taking into mind if they haven't worked on a project like that before. Um, so I suppose it's important to consider the practical the practical elements. Um, like you want to be able to control the light in the space. You want to be able to um, offer, I suppose, a functional use for the for the window dressings. Because um, it has to be it has to be that balance between letting all the light in but keeping keeping it private. It's yeah, it's privacy and controlling the light really. So yeah. um, depending on the use of the room, you know, if it's a kitchen or a living space or whatever it might be, it's keeping in mind that you want them to be functional, you want them to work for you. Mm. Are blinds still popular? Are they the most popular? And what type of blinds? Um, very much so, actually, because um, you're kind of thinking in, in more modern contemporary interiors, you're going to want to incorporate maybe more simple blinds. Um, a lot of extensions or new bills would incorporate a huge amount of glass and windows and, you know, kind of, I suppose, elements um, to introduce light into the space. So blinds, I find, to be really functional. Um, they're they've, they've gone kind of, do, do you remember there was a fashion um, for these kind of fussy, like Laura Ashley or, you know, the Roman blinds that went up and down on, on the, in the kind of ruffles and all that. Is that is that kind of done away with now? Um, are, are people favouring something very plain and minimalist? Um, it depends on their space, really. Um, I am finding that a lot of more pattern and colour and decorative um, window dressings are coming back around. Um, again, it depends on the style of the house. You know, if you're looking at a more um, traditional style, you probably want to bring in more decorative window dressings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a bit of a cross. I think um, in cases where... Uh, you know, people mightn't want to draw too much attention to the window dressings. They'll go with more simple fabrics, um, more simple designs. Um, but in the case, I suppose, where you want to make a feature of the window dressings, you want to have, you know, more the, opulent Yeah, uh, the, the balance and the curtains yeah, and, the all, the and, and all the trimming that. and kind of have it like far more decorative. Um, They're expensive, you know, aren't they? They are expensive. Uh, and so I think budget is always, I mean, across the board with interiors, budget is always, you know, we, we, we work on functionality, practicality, budget and aesthetics. So your budget, you want to factor in from the very start what you want to spend on your yeah, window Yeah, because do you think that there's a, a sense that just people leave it to the last minute? Like they'll wait till the room is finished and then say, oh, we should put up some curtains here or whatever. Well, that's it. That's it. And that's why I kind of say from the very start, um, when you're planning a scheme or when you're looking at a space to consider this and um, consider how you want it to look, how you want them to function and, and mm. what, you know, what mm. you're going to budget for them, because you don't want to get to the point where you're kind of finishing up the project and, and you know, you don't have the budget to allocate to these because they are expensive. Now, I know people get confused. Well, I know I get confused when, you know, you you buy a set of curtains or a, a voile drape or whatever and then you're wondering what will I put it on because these tracks that you can put up or pole or you know you can get steel or wood if you get that wrong it kind of ruins the effect so give us a few tips on what goes with what so yes you definitely want your style of your curtain to align with the track or the pole um 
in a more contemporary space, I'll generally go with a simple wall-mounted track. Um, these can be also electrical, so you can you can control them with a remote control yeah. or you can control them manually. Um, so I would recommend with kind of more simple designs, simple curtains, um, linens, shears, for example, you would... Um, you would mount a track onto the wall, um, which is quite simple, kind of falls away against the wall. Mm. Um, more decorative curtains, I would be fixing a pole, um, a wooden pole, a brass pole, uh, metal poles. Um, and give it a kind of a bit of status. And just give yeah. it, yeah, a bit a bit more prominence, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Ruth Noble, thanks a million uh, for joining us with all of those tips. Where can people find out more about what you do? Thanks a million. So um, Instagram at Ruth Noble Interiors and also the website ruthnobleinteriors.com. Fantastic. Uh, and happy Easter to you. And thanks I hope so you have a nice, uh, a nice day uh, tomorrow. Now, my thanks to you for listening to the Home Show podcast and indeed to all my guests this week. If you'd like to get involved in the show and have a question or a topic you'd like us to cover well then please do get in touch with us we love hearing from you uh, you can text us uh, during the week at 53106 for 30 cents you can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com uh, and of course you can listen to The Home Show on Saturday mornings between 8 and 9 on News Talk Radio thanks to Aoife Breen producing this week on sound Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy and we'll do it all again next time The Home Show with Sinead Ryan, Saturday morning at 8. With Colour Trend Paint on News Talk.